Welcome to the arena, where sometimes the hardest part is showing up. My name is Linda McLaughlin. Thank you for being here. I had a lot of fun talking to Maxine Bailey, and I certainly learned a lot about courage from her. In this episode, we'll hear about her experiences growing up, becoming a mother, and being a creative force in the arts community in Toronto. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Thank you for listening. How are you? I'm fine. <laughs> I am. I'm a bit nervous, but I'm fine. Yeah. You know, it's so, it's so odd to talk about yourself. So I, I find it odd. There is that kind of like, oh, I hope I have enough to fill 10 minutes. And you okay. have books galore behind you. Yes. It's, it's my weakness. <laughs> it is. It is a weakness. Um, because, I mean, if I turn the computer around, there's books over there. There's books here. There's <laughs> books. Like, there are, there are too many. And I have probably 75 unread books. Plus, I'm reading on my Kobo. So it's a bit extreme. It's a weakness. Today and tomorrow are going to be reading days. So I'm very excited about that. I'm trying to read 80 books this year. Wow. But I'm a bit behind. I've only read 46 or something. I have a short intro for you. And so I'm just going to throw it out and see if it fits. Maxine is a force. <laughs> she is an award-winning arts professional, a voracious reader and literary evangelist, a relentless advocate for women and racialized communities, a mother and grandmother. She is a founder and supporter of numerous arts and cultural initiatives, and she notably launched Share Her Journey in 2017 as one of her many legacies in the film industry. I, I, I am impressed with who that person is. <laughs> Whoever that is, I want to know them. <laughs> that sounds pretty good. <laughs> Okay, end of interview. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds pretty damn good. Yeah, well, it is pretty damn good. You are quite the woman. And I was so delighted to have the opportunity to talk to you because when I thought about who should I talk to in the context of people living courageously, Mm. well, you're very close to the top of that list. I always admired your tenacity, your willingness to put yourself out there for others and for ideas that Mm. you really believe in. Mm. Well, that served me. I would say that uh, I I learned quite early on from my paternal grandmother to never let anybody tell you no, never let anybody tell you not now and not you. And I don't think everybody else got that memo because I kind of move forward on that. And I think a lot of people are kind of like, why is she still going with this idea? What is, what is wrong with this woman? Why didn't she get the message? We're not interested, we're not listening. But you know, there's something deep down inside me that <clears throat> if I feel like we share her journey, I felt I was inspired by a talk I saw in Cannes in like 2015 or something. And it was the Swedish woman who ran this film organization. And she wanted to get more women to make films or to apply for money. And she just kind of did one small tweak and changed how many women applied for film. And I was like, my God, well, I work at TIFF and it's the right time. It's the right place. 
And if not us, who? If not now, when? And so I came back with this kind of half-baked idea about what we could do to kind of change the dial. And selfishly, there was also an opportunity for TIFF to help get more women in front and behind the camera, but also to provide more product for TIFF in the future. And I thought it was such a simple idea. And I thought everybody's going to be very excited about this. And they weren't, Linda. They weren't. Nobody wanted to know about it. Everybody said it wasn't our core business. Why would we do this? We're not a training organization, but I was like, we will need product in the future. And if women represent 51% of the population, why aren't we trying to get more of their stories out? And I did more research and I found out that entering film school, the gender divide is 50-50. But two years out of film school, you've got more men making films than women. And why is that? Is it because they're going off to have children and start their families? Is it because they've been capped at a certain place? Is it because they're seen only as caretakers, aka producers? What is it? Why aren't they conceived or thought of as creators? And so I did some kind of non-scientific interviews with a bunch of women I knew in the film industry. And I kept going, you've made three shorts. How come you haven't made a feature? You've made a lot of commercials. How come you haven't And it was always, I don't get the opportunity. I don't get the money. I don't get, you know. So I was like, why can't we change that? And so seven months of internal kind of pushing and nudging, I was finally able to launch Share Her Journey in July 2017. And some people were still kind of grumbling inside, but I thought it was a really great thing. I hoped that we could get 100 women through our various programs within a year. And in October 2017, all the news was taken over by Harvey Weinstein. Mm. And all of a sudden, this was the most brilliant idea that anybody had ever thought of. Supporting women and putting women in front. So, me pushing my half-baked ideas don't usually go over very well uh, initially. I have some kind of spidey sense that serves me later. Not in the moment, but later. And I think that's been my life. I will keep pushing until I get some movement. And I'm kind of good at kind of deking around and, okay, so that didn't work. Okay, either I have to change my story, change the narrative, find a way to make it important for this person as well. What's the difference that you've seen between the people who take that no, internalize it, and it just stops them dead And someone who just says, no is an opinion. It's not the answer. Mm -hmm. Have you seen that in action in your life? Yes, I have seen some of my team and I've seen some of my coworkers kind of go, that was a great idea, but I just can't get traction on it. So I'm just going to leave it alone. And it's sad for me. It's sad to see that sparkle in somebody's eye be diminished. And this is another thing I never want to do. I never want to dim my lights. What event in your life has had the most profound impact? I would say I had my daughter quite young. So that definitely created a detour or pivot in my life. Making that decision when you're that young, making that decision to 
keep the, the pregnancy or to terminate. And I'd made the decision to keep the baby. I would say I've always followed my gut. So when I made the decision to keep my child and then I ended up working retail and then I ended up being sent to head office to train as an assistant buyer at Dilex. I didn't seek out those opportunities. Those opportunities came to me. But what I have been more aware of is that when somebody gives me an opportunity to realize it's an opportunity. I recall you saying numerous times in the various times that I showed up at the festival as an employee on contract, I recall you saying, we're not saving lives. Let's put it in context. Yeah. And it totally helped me. And I believe it helped me with my leadership with my team. Like, yes, it's a very important job. And a lot of things depend on you doing your job well in the big scheme of the festival. But ultimately, we're not brain surgeons. We're not saving lives. We're creating great atmosphere and events and environments for people to see films. So there's no, you know, like how, what was that movie? There's no crying in baseball. Yes. I was like, yeah. I was like, this is not worth your tears. Other things in life will come that will impact you, your family, your friends. Those will be worth your tears. This, not worth it. How was being a young mother a great way of basically putting life in perspective and experiences in perspective for you? Um, I think you just nailed it. It totally, um, yeah. If I have to go home and look at my daughter and pay my babysitter and those things were important to me. I, at one point when I was raising my daughter, I had two part-time jobs. I was going to school and raising her. And I don't know how I did it. Like I actually have no recollection of how I got up every day knowing that I had to get her to daycare or to school, get to class. After class, I would go work at the Eaton Center in one of those retail stores, then get home, do homework, go in and see her, and then I would start the cycle again. I have zero idea of how I did all of that. Zero. But I just did it. You just got up and you pushed through. And I think if you overthink everything, that's when you start to, um, you get stymied, you can't move, you get frozen. Having somebody else that you're ultimately responsible for does change your approach, I think, to work Mm. and to life. I think it does. I feel like you've really challenged the status quo a lot in your life. One of the descriptors I didn't use in your little biography that I came up with was being a Black woman Mm. in the context that you were in, Mm -hmm. surrounded by very white people. And mm-hmm. in, in an industry that is profoundly white and male-dominated. Yes. Yes. Um, I came to Canada. I was born in the UK, spent some time in Barbados, where my parents are from. And then I came to Canada when I was 12. And I would say that that short period of time that I spent in Barbados from 8 to 12 was instrumental in my approach to life. Not that I didn't experience a lot of paper cuts, racial paper cuts when I came to Canada. I would say that those four years in Barbados where I got to see people who look like me being 
all kinds of position of power from judges to police, to teachers, to doctors, gave me some kind of strength or ability to know that I could possibly be anything. But when I came to Canada in 1971, this city was so totally different. It looked different, it felt different. And I became used to being the only one in the room. And it was hard. I remember in junior high, we were reading To Kill a Mockingbird. And uh, sometimes the teacher would make different kids read passages. And hearing that word, or because we were reading on our own, then we had to read out loud in school. And hearing the N-word, and I think there's maybe three or four dozen times it said in that book. And there was zero discussion about the word or acknowledging that I was even present in the room. And dealing with the other kids giggling every time they heard the word or somebody had to say it, and then they would look at me or I would feel that they were looking at me. And I got very, very creative, Linda, where I would read ahead when we're in class and I would read ahead and I would try and go, oh my God, by the time she finishes that passage, I don't want to have to say that word. So I'd read ahead mm-hmm. and I would be very creative. Like I would start coughing and I you know, wouldn't be able to read my passage. She would pass me over or I would excuse, I'd have to go to the bathroom because I, like, I don't even know. At 12 years old, like 12, 13, like I don't even know how I dealt with that. Um, But I do know those two creative areas of going to the bathroom or start coughing so you won't have to say the word. And even though I probably wasn't, you know, I couldn't articulate why. I just knew it was a bad word. I shouldn't say it. And I didn't want to hear it. And, um, And I think that, especially after spending those four years in Barbados with my grandparents on both sides and seeing, you know, them working so hard and not being anything that that word was supposed to mean. And then coming to Canada and being the only one in the class, having to deal with that without the support of any of the adults. Um, I think it helped with the Teflon skin. It, It helped inform who I am. It did allow me in a strange way, I guess, I realized I was picking my battles. You can get upset about everything or you can get upset about the important stuff. And, you know, I don't know where I had the wherewithal as an early teenager to try and protect myself from that kind of stuff. I just want to acknowledge, I can't imagine Mm-hmm. That, that lived experience of being being the only. Mm-hmm. But I've, I've been the only one in a number of situations. Of course. Being the only one can be a burden or you can look at it as this is my opportunity to change minds and change lives. I think I waffled. Sometimes it's great. It's an opportunity. In certain cases, I mean, I've talked to people in my jobs where somebody has felt quite comfortable saying, you're the first Black person I've met. And this is like an adult. Oh, my God. 
this is an adult who's gone through, you know, various levels of school and university and they're working and they've been out in their field for like, you know, five or 10 years. And I'm like, wow, how small is your circle? Because I think you have to work really, really hard to make sure your world just looks like you, only like you, especially in a city like Toronto. I think you have to work extra hard to make sure that your life in all the various concentric circles is just more people who look like you. Because I, I, don't, I don't know how people do it. I know that when I look at my circle of friends, it's ever-changing, ever-evolving. So I find it strange that somebody who's like nearly 30 told me that never met a Black person before. I found that so bizarre. And then also they're waiting for a response, right? They want me to help them through it. Well, and I also acknowledge the absolute exhaustion. Being in that position is... Again, I can't imagine how exhausting it is having someone say that to you. And it's like, how exactly am I going to (laughs) respond to this? (laughs) Or do you choose to respond or do you just kind of go, oh, let's go get a drink or look, they're serving hors d'oeuvres because really, you're right. It is exhausting. And sometimes you just don't have the juice. Yeah. Yeah. You just don't. It's like, I can't help you through this. If you got to 30 and this is... I don't know if I'm able. And also, I have to tell you, I'm not a shrink. I don't have a degree. I can't help you through all of these things. So, yeah. 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 Can't do it. Can't do it. Can't do it. What does living courageously mean to you? See, I I don't even know, because to me, being courageous is like, you know, being bold and fearless. and, And I don't know if I get up with those words or that feeling every day. I think there are a lot of other people who live very courageously. With the recent social climate, all those people who went on the picket lines, that's being very courageous. The people who call out injustices at work or out in the political sphere, those people are living courageously. Getting up every day as a Black woman in North America, in Toronto, knowing that I'm already operating at a disadvantage and still getting out of bed, to me, that's a win. That's a win. Just getting up and being able to take a stab at it on a a regular basis. But knowing that there's all these preconceived things that are working against you and you still being able to get out of bed and still being able to find some joy in your day and laughing, that to me is living courageously. And that's all I can do. There is something about knowing who you are, knowing what you want to do, knowing that you can do whatever you want to do without people putting you in a box. Mm. The whole thing about dimming your lights is a fantastic notion for me. And it's also kind of code with a few of my friends. It's like, don't let people dim your lights. And just saying that gives you that kind of, yeah, why am I doing that? Mm. And I work hard at not dimming my lights. Is there anything that you'd like to share as a final thought? I would say the one constant in my life has been that I'm naturally curious. Don't always accept the status quo. Always remember to have fun and um, live your life to the fullest and don't let anybody dim your lights. This has been great. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. I started out being very, very nervous and I think this has been just fine.
it's been better than fine. It's been great. Thank you. <laughs> I was like, how will I fill the time? You asked me two questions and I couldn't stop talking. Thank you. <laughs> Thank That's you great. so, so much for even having me on, even thinking that I had something to share with anybody. You have an enormous amount to share, Maxine. It's really about finding people who, like you, it's like, oh, well, what have I done? And it's uncovering that courage that we all have. Mm. It's just sometimes we don't recognize it as such. And my hope is people listening to this podcast will, through other stories, discover their own courage and recognize it and hopefully embrace it and allow that to bring them through maybe difficult times, but certainly to bring them forward into new discoveries about themselves. I'm so glad you're doing it. And I'm so glad and chuffed. I'm very, very chuffed that you asked me to be part of it. So thank you. You're welcome. Thank you once again for listening. If you feel someone else might benefit from listening to this podcast, please share it or leave a rating or review where you listen to your podcasts. I look forward to sharing my next guest story of becoming a highly respected serial entrepreneur in the mining industry. She's generous, engaging, and determined to diversify her male-dominated industry. She's also a great storyteller. Until next time, I'm your host, Linda McLaughlin, in The Arena 